Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. For this series, we've asked some of our regular interviewers to pick out their favourite moments from the Hay Archive. And this week, it's the turn of magazine journalist Kitty Corrigan. I first came to Hay Festival in 1998 in my capacity as a journalist for Country Living magazine. And events in those days were held in the primary school and the community hall and Hay Castle grounds. I came back every year after that. And one year after a festival event, which by then was out in the tented village, I had an epiphany moment. I decided I wanted to live here. My friends and colleagues in London thought this was just a passing phase, but the idea grew and grew, and I did give up my dream job in London and went freelance and moved to Hay in January 2012. Since then, I've had the opportunity to talk and interview many inspiring authors. My main interest in journalism is writing about rural and environmental issues, so I was delighted when I got the opportunity, not once but twice, to talk to the nature writer John Lewis Stemple. He is a writer who farms, and he's also an environmentalist and a military historian. The book that I talked to him about in 2015 was Meadowland, The Private Life of an English Field, and it won that year's Wainwright Prize for nature writing. I think nature writing has enjoyed a resurgence recently, and maybe that's partly due to the fact that we've all had more time to think about how life could be different after the pandemic the difference green recovery could make. And also, we've gained so much if we've had the opportunity to get out into nature and walk in the countryside. The excerpt I've chosen is a reading from Meadowland, after which the author talks about the decline of farmland birds and the importance and contribution of the English meadow Of course, so few of these are now remaining. 28th of June. Under a chattering swallow sky, I run down the bank. Two of the Gloucester old spots have done a bunk from the orchard. Like the truant cow, they have headed for the luxury grass of Lower Meadow, where they have snouted the entrance gate off its hinges and are now energetically eating their mouths an epileptic, frothy green. They are pigs in clover. When Frida, and who's my daughter, when Frida was younger, I think about age, we mislaid her. Forty acres is at its vastest when you cannot find your child, and there is a river all along the eastern boundary, and a lane all along the western one, a lane with cars. Frida went missing just before noon on the day when the sun seemed locked above our heads and the land was holding its breath. Penny, my wife, who is less prone to panic, started a methodical search of the house and garden, while I speed walked down the field to the river. Soon I was running and calling. At every alien shape in the water, a snagged plastic feed bag, a broken galvanised bucket washed down from God knows where, I imagined the worst. Nothing. Sheeting with sweat, I began running up in Wellingtons, a feet usually beyond me, and decided to cut through the pig paddock to get to the fields leading to the lane. As I scrambled down the metal gate into bare earth of the pig's enclosure, I saw, at the corner of my eye, Frieda's clothes entangled with a row of pink pigs lying like sausages in the packet. I can tell you what the end of the world looks like. In a circle around you, everything dissolves and melts, 
So you know that life is an illusion, a pretty screen over the internal expanding chaos of the universe. For one terrifying second, I thought that the pigs eaten Frida. As I stumbled forward, I could see that Frida was still inside the clothes. I could see that she was intact. As I reached her and touched her beautiful rosy-cheeked face, I could see that she was breathing. Colour burst into the world. Time is speeded up to its proper dimension. I'm probably imagining this, but I'm sure birds started singing too. Frida was fast asleep between two pigs. Feeling my fingers on her face, she opened her eyes. Hi, Daddy, she said, before turning over on her side, the better to cuddle the pig next to her. The pig grunted its minor annoyance before shifting its weight to accommodate her, setting off her porcine ripple as every pig adjusted its place in the sun. I have another memory of pigs, a memory from my own childhood. I'm about six, standing on a wooden Davis Brooks lemonade box, arms leaning on the concrete wall of the pigsty at my grandparents' house. The pigs are milling around, squealing in excitement, because they, because they can smell the buckets of warm mash bored out from kitchen leftovers that Pop-Up, as we call my grandfather, is about to tip into their metal troughs. As the food arcs down from the buckets, I slyly look at my grandfather's thin arms, leather brown below his rolled-up shirt sleeves. His arms always fascinate me, because the tendons, after 50 years of farming, are taut steel wire horses. The pigs jostle and barge so that the herd order for pigs are strictly hierarchical, is maintained, and the top pigs have what is presumed to be the biggest and best portions. Always, always remember this about pigs, John, he says, and suddenly jabs one pig, ear, pig on the ear with a spade. There is a grunt from the recesses of time, from the primordial swamp, as the pig bites at the shovel. Popot retracts the shovel, bends down and points to the blade, swiveling it slightly so it catches the morning light. The pig has left gashing teeth marks in the steel. My grandfather is a man of few words, but actions speak louder. Any animal that can leave bite marks in steel can bite off a human limb. The problem with pigs is that one is never quite sure how they will react, daily pacific or violently aggressive. The bristly Gloucester old spots do not like being shoved off the grass, and one whips around and tries to bite me. A shark's mouth is tender, quaint in comparison. By the time I have got them back into their paddock, they have been out in the Aztec sun for too long, and their pale ears are reddening with sunburn. They snort satisfiedly when I rub sun lotion into their ears. The Gloucester old spots and the truant cow are not alone in the liking for my grass. In the grey-scale evening, a shuffling family party badgers dines on the stuff too. Thank you. You're obviously very fond of Herefordshire, but in the book you call it the unknown county. And why, why is that? Why do you... So it's unknown. Um, because virtually every utility writes to me in Hertfordshire. I mean, you know, I, I thought Hereford was the centre of the world. And as you go to Hereford Cathedral, it's actually in the map of Mundi. I'm sure when I was a child, I used to look at the map of Mundi and thought, you know, the chain holding up, holding up earth from heaven was actually mm. centred on Hereford. And it was a real disappointment when I went to school and found it. If it wasn't the centre of, of, of the universe. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, you know, I rarely bump into anyone who has A, ever heard of Herefordshire, or B, has kind of ever been there. Um, I don't know. They're missing a lot, is what I would say. But, yes. they, but my wife says I should also be paid by Hereford Tourist Board for always singing its praises. 
And we're at an advantage in Hay, in a way, in that the, um, the nearest train station is, is Hereford. So um, if you want to come to Hay, you really want to come because yeah. it's not that easy to get to. Um, now, on a serious note, we've heard a lot on um, the media recently about the cuckoo, and you talk about the cuckoo in your book and the decline of it. And I, I heard just recently that actually the cuckoo song is unique to this country. And I suppose we have a love-hate relationship with them in that we think they're, they're selfish going into other birds' nests, but yet we want to hear the first cuckoo of spring. And you were saying earlier that actually you haven't heard it this year. I would love to hear a cuckoo. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, farmland birds. <laughs> farmland birds declined something like 50% in the last... I mean, mm. it's 50% in the last you know, 50 years. It, it's not just, you know, the kind of you know, number of species is declining. It's just the absolute amount of birds. I mean, you know, um, you know spring should be about birdsong. I mean, the season should be about birdsong and changing birdsong. Mm. You know, and there are huge parts of Herefordshire even now. I mean, we actually rent some land outside hill country where, you know, nature's still relatively well kind of, you know, abundant. We actually rent some land in the intensive farming area uh, where I'm actually trying to recreate um, some traditional hay meadows. And, and I've actually had to walk a mile to hear one skylark. I mean, the actual mm. sound of spring there is actually silence. I mean, it's mm. actually quite incredible. Mm. Um, it's pretty depressing. And what can we do? Can we do anything about that? Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. I'm totally, totally convinced that there's, there, there is a way back. Um, so, I mean, we've lost 97% of, of, of meadows. Um, mm. But, you know, there's a really good, um, you know, charity conservation project led by um, Prince Charles. Prince Charles is, um, Prince Charles is now my darling. Um, which is identifying, you know, these kind of um, um, hay meadows all over the mm. county, and uh, but not just identifying and preserving ones which already exist, but recreating new ones. Mm. It does take a long time. It is not mm. an easy thing to do, but it can be done. But I mean, it's something you know. I think everyone can do. I mean, um, you know, if you've got a garden, you might want to turn it into a, a mini wildflower meadow. I mm. mean, you know, when some of the most valuable bits of wildflower meadows left are oh, actually on kind of verges, and councils could be encouraged not to do the kind of normal scorched earth mm. policy of mm. absolutely, you know, killing everything, um, and, but letting, you know, wildflowers um, seed. Mm. Um, but, you know, support conservation charities. Yes. Um, it's not that easy to maintain a wildflower meadow, no. is it? Though it's not like just letting nature no. take its course, because no. there are obviously invasive yeah. species that strangle mm. others. So it, it is a bit of an undertaking. It, it is. I mean, you know... Um, <coughs> It can be difficult to set one up, and then you say that you've got to actually, you know, you do actually have to maintain it. I mean, if you're doing it in your garden, basically, mm. you actually have to imitate the kind of you know, normal kind of calendar. I mean, um, meadows are very specific things, actually. Um, you know, they are um, places where, you know, grass is grown, grass and plants are grown for winter fodder for livestock. Uh, meadow comes from Saxon meadwood, meaning to mow. And... A meadow follows, from a human point of view, a kind of very definite calendar, which is traditionally, on Candlemas, the 2nd of February, the field would be locked up or shut up, which means no grazing by livestock. And then the grass and flowers are allowed to grow. Crucially, it has to be allowed to grow at least until the latter half of July. Mm. Because if you start cutting before that date, what you're doing, A, is not allowing um, seeds Mm. to seed, what you're doing is any bird or animal nesting is going to be chopped up by the mower. So, mm. you know, that has to be kind of followed for kind of wildlife preservation. 
And then traditionally, the, the cut is quite late, sort of July. Um, and then on, on loaf mass, um, 2nd of August, um, usually cattle are let mm. back in um, to graze in what is known as, as the aftermath, the kind of, you know, the cut area. Um, but that's really important. Mm. You, you've got to kind of follow that and, and, and then have it grazed probably through till, you know, to the end of the year with, with, with sheep and cattle. Because if you just let it go, you end up mm. with a, a jungle, not... Um, not a wildflower meadow. I mean, you know, the brilliant thing, the thing I really, really love about meadows is they can be this brilliant kind of trinity. Um, they really show a model of how humans, livestock, and nature can exist together. Because as I said earlier, meadows aren't natural. They're made by humans. But to maintain a meadow, you've actually got to do it um, in alliance with livestock, but you are actually creating, at the same time, you know, a place of, of, of wonder, a place that's absolutely fantastically biodiverse. I mean, a good hay meadow is going to have something approaching 45 species of flora per square metre. And that's an incredible thing, you know. I mean, it's beautiful. And one of the things we should you know, treasure about meadows like that is actually they're beautiful, actually kind of part of our heritage. It does always strike me as a bit odd, by the way, that nobody in this country would torch a John Constable painting, but the scenes, and indeed the meadows that inspired him, we just dig up willy-nilly and, and lose you know, that kind of heritage. And I think actually meadows are quite an important part of, of the British um, heritage. Can you think, for instance, how do we define ourselves historically in terms of cuisine? Well, you know, it's to do with roast beef in Merry England, and what's beef that's grown on meadows. You know, What's the great thing about um, you know, British gardening? You know, what's distinctive? Well, it's the lawn, isn't it? And what's the lawn? It's nothing but a meadow in captivity. I mean, you have an unacknowledged part of our kind of you know, history and heritage and are quite you know, lodged in our kind of um, psyche. I mean, the problem with you know, you know, modern fields for grass, which is usually silage, not hay, is you get tremendous volume, but the amount of kind of species you get in there is tiny, if you know, barely existent. A, a field where grass is grown for, you know, Im and imp improved, I always love the word improved, usually it needs heavily inverted commas. Improved grass for silage can have as few as five plant species per square metre. It's cut three times between May and September, so no nesting bird or animal has a chance to produce yarn because it'll be cut up by the cutters. Usually the sward, anyway, is so dense that nothing can actually even, mm. um, even nest in it. And I firmly believe, actually, that um, livestock that's you know, grazed on a traditional hay meadow and the hay from that, um, and this is going into my stomach here, hey, I, think it, I think it tastes better. But also, I think the animals that graze on a traditional hay meadow are much healthier. If I were to nominate a Hay author I would like to have interviewed, it would have to be Seamus Heaney. I say I would love to have interviewed him, but actually I was always so much in awe of him and still am of all his work that I don't think I could have opened my mouth and asked an intelligent question. Ireland surely never had a better ambassador, North and South, than Seamus Heaney. During the Troubles, both sides of a conflict vied for his allegiance, but he always refused to be part of any political faction. He was brought up on a farm in County Derry, where I went to school, 
and I visited the village where he lived, Belache. And in fact, there's a small museum there where you can watch a video of him reciting a poem that has never been published in any collection. Although he spent many years in Dublin and County Wicklow, it is back in the village of Belache that he was buried when he died in 2013. The clip I have chosen is from his appearance in 2006, where he's talking about life in Belfast in the 60s, when he studied at Queen's University and then went on to teach and lecture there. I think it's very revealing of his personality, his sense of humour, his humility and his anxiety about writing the next poem or compiling the next collection. A standard question at any literary festival is to ask about the writer's daily routine. Not so long ago it used to be, would you ever consider using a word processor? But each answer is, is different and so individual. And I was relieved to hear from Seamus Heaney that it's not necessary or indeed possible to write every day and that he didn't rise at 6am and work for five hours before stopping, although he joked that he liked other people to think that he did. Here is Seamus Heaney talking to the then Wales National Poet Laureate, Gwyneth Lewis. Um, I'd like to ask a few questions now, more specifically about the business of um, producing poetry um, and about the creative economy that you, ha you particularly have because you've written criticism, a, a lot of criticism, and you've taught and lectured. And um, not in the... Um, obviously, in you know, the Wordsworthian fear that we murder to dissect, that, not in that sense because it's obviously fed into your poetry, but how does that work as part of the general creative economy for you? Well, I think it had a lot to do with my getting a job in a university in 1966 because I had published a book of poems, I think, oddly enough. Um, I got my BA at Queen's University, 1961. I did a year's teacher training. I started to teach. Upwardly mobile after a year, teacher training college. Then a book published in 1966. An interview for a Queen's University, job in Queen's University. BA from five years earlier, now teaching students five years younger. Always a little anxious. And I said to the head of the department um, one night when C. Day Lewis visited, C. Day Lewis visited Queen's, I felt really initiated. The professor, the head of the department, asked me to drive himself and C. Day Lewis to the hotel. We left Day Lewis off. Then I drove the professor home. At this point, emboldened by all this intimacy, I, 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 seriously, yeah, those were hierarchical days. I, I, I said, uh, sh should I do an MA now? <laughs> because I was simulating an MA all the time. And he said, no, no, most people do that to get the job you have, he said. <laughs> what you should do is write the occasional lecture or, or essay about poetry. And I was invited, first of all, to give a public lecture by Liverpool University, Kenneth Muir and Kenneth Allett. I felt really honoured, and I did a 
still prepared a speech. And actually, that is how it's continued ever since. Almost everything written in any, all of those pages were invitations, and I took them on to prove myself, to, to pull my weight in the academy. And I, I always had this, always had and still have this sense that the poems are a grace and that you don't really rely on them for your bread and butter or for your job work, you know. They, they are different from your, your work. They aren't part of your bibliography in an odd sort of way. No. You know. Yeah. Um, they're more part of your fingerprints. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well done. And, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's how it's going to be. <laughs> You once, I once heard you say that uh, the term an established poet is a contradiction in terms. You're very, 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 very established. <laughs> now, how, how does that... Does that make it more difficult to write in some ways? Or I don't know the answer to that. I think since, I, since Death for Naturalist was published, it was well received, for, which is a good thing, and then it has its anxieties as you must know. <laughs> and uh, so, so self-forgetfulness becomes the sine qua non of successful secret action, you know. And, and that is the, really the test, uh, as far as possible, to forget yourself. Now, that, that, that is helped by having friends, I think. Not, you need a large number, but two or three talented fond mockers mm. uh, very very useful and uh, and also desperation now and again I have to write something established covers everything that has happened but it, as you know it doesn't mean a thing no. because you're anxious about the next poem and I think anxiety is part of the drive also uh, I mean, I'm told that your latest book, and I think we should congratulate you on behalf of the whole of our culture, that you're outselling Jamie Oliver <laughs> at the moment. Yes. You must have a huge amount or a huge capacity for self-forgetfulness in that case. I have, I have. Um, and and uh, without using some of the more usual methods that writers notoriously do use. Um, but, I mean, I, I'd like to push you on this point, actually, because I think it's, you, your achievement in doing that is extraordinary. Well, I think uh, the house, the second house I have, the housing cabin, mm. hut, whatever you want to call it, uh, certainly for the last uh, 20 years, say, to go to this place has been saving for me. It's like going into a safe, psychic space. And as I said, even if I don't work there, I feel as if I have worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's... Uh, that, that was... That's at a certain point, I was kind of in my 40s, and I was getting very busy. And I let myself get busy. And of course, I went to Harvard, which was bread and butter, and I was very grateful. I traveled to the United States. I taught four months of the year. And I actually didn't write at that time. I mean, I didn't. It was partly to do again with my apartment in Adam's house. Had windows on this side and windows on this side. And it was like living in a train corridor. And I don't know. For, I was also busy. And I, I suspect I felt as a, a seaman felt 
fields, you know. You go up the gangplank, you're on, you're doing it. Then you come off. But I came a time when I, this was a very perilous division, coming back home. The house I had in Dublin was, of course, our dwelling house, family house, became a mixture of travel agency and telephone exchange. And, and uh, at that point I did feel crowded and anxious and threatened. But this house, came, this other place came into my possession. And I, I get there for two days a week or so, mm. and it's absolutely necessary. We were talking uh, earlier about uh, um, other poets, as you do, and we were mentioning another poet who um, gets up early in the morning, and you said this is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> not for that particular poet, but I think um, what I would like to ask you is what... What kind of routine do you keep? I'm always very, very interested in how other poets work. Yeah. I mean, I take it you're not getting up at six in the morning by your previous comments. No, but I, I like to put that about that I am. Ah. <laughs> I was a, a, a journalist in Dublin. Actually, when I did went, to, I left Belfast. I was four years full time, and I had a routine, and I did work uh, quite methodically. But uh, he, he said to me, look, he said, you're doing too many things. He said, you're, you know, you're, you're doing these readings, you're traveling, you're, you're, you're teaching. and you're, how, how do you do it? I said, oh, I get up at six o'clock, Eugene. You know, Jeez, that's marvelous, he said. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I lived perilously, actually, for a long time in that regard. Maybe I didn't have a strong enough routine. Now I do have more and more time and more deliberately keep time. Uh, just to be silent, you know, for a couple of hours. Uh, but it's, it's, I find it impossible to, to uh, write poetry every day. I have, to be, I have to feel that there's something to write about. And uh, to be truthful, we both have experience of the workshop culture. And uh, there, uh, there's industry, labor, and work. Uh, you know, and industriousness can produce a lot of stuff that, you know, is all there, all right. But I don't read it with the same appetite. I mean, I think it's a, I think there are necessary things, and then there are things that that are you keep you could keep going. My and every I think every writer's problem is to know to adjudicate between the truly given thing that is alive and that you that you work with and keep moving to its limit. Uh, and then you could overdo it, you know, and you could, you could use your capacities to just keep going. And, uh, is it partly a question of dream time or dreaming time? It certainly is. Yeah. I think it's, it's com almost completely a question of dreaming time. And if you get the right dreaming time, you can do the poem very, very quickly quite often. Yeah. I mean, the quicker, often the better. There we are. <laughs> so now that we've established that Mrs. Heaney does all yeah. the woodcutting yeah. Yeah, yeah. in your household, um, how have you found... Um, you, you have travelled a lot. Um, do, you, do you find that poetry is quite a portable art? Or do you need to be close to the magnetically charged accent of your Ireland to uh, write I, well? 
I think those are in my ear all right, the accents. No, I don't think I need to be in Ireland to write well. But the fact is, I've written very little anywhere else, chiefly because most of the time I spent out of Ireland was spent on that uh, 1982 to 1996, one term a year, Harvard appointment. And as I say, when I was there, I was teaching, I was grading, I was actually, actually going reading and so on. So, uh, uh, so the, but I don't feel I need to be in Ireland to write, but I think I do need this noise in my ear. But it's established, it's already in my ear. I can't get rid of it now. So it's not a question of having to renew it? Uh, you renew it, I think, by writing poems that you like yourself, don't you? Uh, I mean, that's, that's the best renewal any uh, poet can have, is the sense that he or she has done it again. <laughs> and your, your sense of confidence and self-trust is renewed. I was quoting last night this uh, George Herbert line from his poem, The Flower, uh, which I was saying he, he was, I think, in his 40s, or maybe, maybe not even, when he wrote it. But it's about, I mean, it does begin, How swift and sweet, O Lord, are thy returns. And he's renewed. And he says, And now in age I, I bud again. After so many deaths I live and write. I once, I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. So uh, that seems to me to have the complete sweet electricity of the gratitude and the fulfillment mm. in it. Someone I've enjoyed listening to at Hay Festival is the Turkish-British writer and academic Elif Shafak. She has written 18 books, 11 of which are novels, including The Bastard of Istanbul, Three Daughters of Eve and 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world. This last novel was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2019. Her work has been translated into 54 languages around the world and one novel, The 40 Rules of Love, was chosen by the BBC among a 100 books that have shaped our world. I admire her because she can write in two languages, Turkish and English. She speaks eloquently, writes lyrically and, importantly, campaigns forcefully on women's rights and freedom of expression. This has landed her in trouble with her native Turkey. In 2006, she was put on trial, later acquitted, for allegedly insulting the Turkish state in her novel, The Bastard of Istanbul. So she's also brave and fearless. On an aesthetic note, I've always loved her book covers, which are beautifully illustrated. Hers are the books you want to hold in your hand rather than in a Kindle. The clip I've chosen is from a lecture she gave in 2013 in association with PEN, the organisation that defends dissident writers and promotes freedom of speech. This section talks about the different approaches of women and men to writing and reading. There are obviously many, many great female writers, East and West, but I don't think that this changes the fact that in many parts of the world, including Turkey, men write and women read. And this is something that perhaps we need to question, we need to change. We would like to see more male readers reading fiction and more women 
writing their stories. And when I say their stories, that doesn't mean their personal stories, but writing, putting their thoughts on page. And I think, and I think the more patriarchal and enclosed the society tends to get, the more stubborn is this gender division and the more visible. Now, the reason why I wanted to start with this small observation is because I am interested in those voices who are not well heard in the so-called highbrow literature, in the world of highbrow literature. I'm interested in silences. I'm interested in the voices that have been pushed to the margins by the main narrative, the meta-narrative. And in order to tell you how all of that started, I want to tell you my personal encounter with the with a silent letter, which is the silent G. Now, I was born left-handed. I'm, I'm not anymore. Um, but I don't know what to call myself. Am I right-handed? I'm not sure. If I want to open doors, I would use my left hand. If I want to open bottles, I would use my left hand. To comb my hair, I would use my right hand. When I'm writing, when I hold a pen in my hand, I get bored very easily. Like, I write three lines, but that's it. And then I'm disconnected from my hand. So for someone like me, the computer, of course, is a big, big invention. It is the, it's the biggest invention of the humankind, uh, after the printing machine, of course, and maybe smoked salmon, and, <laughs> and um, maybe Lego, at least according to my five-year-old son. I'm jealous of writers who can write in long hands. You know, the whole ritual, the, the smell of ink, fountain pens, the feel of paper. I think it's a, it's a completely different experience. When you, when you write longhand, when you connect with paper and you're writing, it gives, it gives you the feeling that what you are writing, what you're going to do, is very important. It's very personal and it's very unique and it will stay here. Whereas the computer is a different experience. It isn't like that at all. It is cold, it is logical, it's standard. And it tells you, you may sweat and um, suffer to write 400 pages, but with one push of the button, I can erase it all. In a way, the computer makes us face our own vulnerability, doesn't it? And our own mortality. And it also can be terrifying because it shows us the infinity of books and words. When you go online, it is amazing to see how many books are there out there and how many more are coming every day, every day. So what difference does it make, you know? What I write, does it really matter? We're only a drop in the ocean, yeah? So the computer makes us face that reality. To be honest, I find it strangely humbling. And I think, at the same time, the computer makes us see that immortality is also a possibility, because nothing disappears. So in today's world, even dead writers are alive. And the computer is at the same time an open window to the world. When you peek into it, you can see the face of a writer in Argentina. You can see the face of a reader in Bulgaria. And you can feel really, truly connected to the world. But I think overall, it's a bit like the moon. It has the bright side and the dark side. And when you look at the bright side, you know that there's a dark side over there. You, don't, you never forget it. 
But how come this happened? I mean, how come, um, how did my journey start and how I became incapable of writing longhand and so addicted to computers? In order to explain that, I must take you to 1978, to Ankara, which is the capital of Turkey. The Turkey was a different country back then. There were lots of political clashes, many demonstrations on the streets, and a lot of political violence. Between 1971 and 1980, in only nine years, there were 10 different governments, none of them representing a majority. Inflation had surpassed 100% and the economy was going down the drain. For instance, should you see a package on the street as a child, even if it were a nice looking chocolate bar, you were not supposed to touch it because it could be a bomb. And there were people who had lost their limbs like that. So it was a different world. Um, and I think at the time, for a very long time actually, my country was fragmented, it was over-politicized, and it was bleeding. I was seven years old, and rather proud of myself because I had started school and I had learned how to read, but there was one problem, I could not write. And my parents, they had um, got separated a long time ago, but they had legally gotten divorced that year. And I don't know how this came about, but it was decided that I would spend half of the summer of 1978 with my paternal grandmother in Simirna, and half of the, the rest of the summer with my maternal grandmother in Ankara. And these two were completely different women. So I went to Simirna with, you know, with a suitcase, and I had very few items in my suitcase, some shorts, dresses, a few books, there was Alice in Wonderland, there was Robinson Crusoe, there was Little Women. I loved books. As a, as a lonely child, books opened up a new world to me, and I was very fond of reading. My paternal grandmother was a very strict woman, and she opened the suitcase. I didn't know at the time, she was very religious. Um, so she didn't like the dresses I had brought with me, and she was very suspicious of the books I had brought with me. And she thought, uh, if my mother had been a proper mother, she would never have allowed you know, me to, to read such things. So what she did was to close the, the suitcase and put it away. And I felt very bored. It was a house of silence. There wasn't much to do. You, know, you were supposed to learn the chores that girls are supposed to learn, like cleaning, cooking, and other things. But other than that, there was nothing to do. But to my utter delight, there were two books in the house. I found them. One of them was the Holy Quran. It was on the wall. It was in a very nice, beautiful lavender sheath. And the other one was the Islamic interpretation of dreams. So since I had lost my books, they were locked away, I decided I should read these books instead. And I asked my grandmother if she could please um, let me read the Quran. And to my surprise, she didn't like that at all. She said, this was not an ordinary book. It was the most holy book, and therefore I could not touch it or read it or just bring it down the wall as I would like. She put a distance between me and the book. And I could, I could never forget that. I, I thought about that. And the way she spoke made me get the feeling that women could not touch the holy, books, holy book especially on particular days, and children should not approach it either, which left only the men you know, capable of holding the book or having more direct access to the holy book. 
And um, that meant only my father could touch it. And since my father was not around during those days, nobody could touch it. Since I couldn't read the Quran, I moved on to the next book, and that was the Islamic interpretation of dreams. And I loved it. It was an amazing experience for me because here was a book that was not linear. You didn't have to start from the beginning and go middle and end. You could start in the middle. You could go back and forth. It had multiple entrances, multiple corridors. It was like a palace with many, many doors. And most importantly, perhaps, it helped me to realize that everything was open to interpretation. Yeah? Everything we see, it has an outer aspect and the inner meaning. And if you're interested in the inner meaning, then you should look for it. But the text itself, the words, the, the, the books, and everything in, we see in life, they're open to interpretation. I came back from uh, Simirna to Ankara. My maternal grandmother was a completely different woman, and in her house I found a very different atmosphere. She was a, she was a healer, and there were many people coming in and going out, so, um, and there was a lot of gossip, many noises. It wasn't a silent house at all. And her interpretation of Islam was completely different. She didn't talk about fear, she talked about love. Whereas my paternal grandmother's God was a celestial gaze, never, never blinking, you know, always watching you. Yeah? My grandmother's, maternal grandmother's God, again was a celestial gaze, but one who could blink sometimes and allow you to make mistakes, to have doubts. There was room in her understanding for doubts. Now, how do I connect that with being left-handed? My paternal grandmother was very quick to, to realize that as fond as I was of reading books, I wasn't very keen when it came to writing. I didn't want to write. And when she pressed me on this issue, she found that I was left-handed. And she didn't like that. Um, it wasn't the right thing to do. Because she said, on our shoulders, and many people still believe in this, you will hear this um, story in Turkey, on our shoulders are two jinni, or two angels, depending on whom you talk to. And the one sitting on the left shoulder writes down our sins, you know, the mistakes we make. Whereas the one sitting on our right shoulder is the one that writes the good things we do. So if you hold the pen in your left hand, everything you write is bound to be wrong from the very start. Being left-handed is wrong. Um, but to be honest, I wasn't very shocked to hear such things because she wasn't the only one who had told me these things. I had started school, as I said. I had, you know, I had a class teacher, and she more or less had said the same things, although in more secularist terms. So in a way, I was taught to use my right hand. Now, when I came back to Ankara, to my maternal grandmother, um, I asked her if it was okay to be left-handed. And she said, if God had wanted to create all of us the same, he sure would have done so. If he hadn't, he must have a reason, and we must respect that reason. If I, when I said, if God was a celestial gaze all the time watching us from above, yeah, and judging us and punishing us, she said, well, you know, um, and even watching us in the bathroom. And she said, I'm sure he has more, you know, important things to do than that. <laughs> But most importantly, I think she was a very, very compassionate woman. And at the center of her belief system was love instead of fear. Now, 
here too was a Quran in this house too. And I want to tell you a little bit about the books that were present in my maternal grandmother's house. There was a Quran, but it wasn't on the wall. It was on the shelf. So you could reach it. You could touch the book. You could read the book. Yeah, it was accessible. And at the same time, there were some other books. There was, for instance, the love story of Farhad and Shirin. There was the love story of Joseph and Zuleikha. The love story of Leila and Majnun. The Adventures of Nasreddin Hoca, Black Humor, and two other books next to them, The Condition of the Working Class in England <laughs> by Engels, and The Elementary Principles of Philosophy. These last books were, of course, not my grandmother's books. They were my leftist uncle's books. They belonged to him, and he had just you know, read them and forgotten in our house. And we would burn both of them in the kitchen sink in 1980, when a military coup d'etat took place in the country. Both books were banned. Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can find over 8,000 more recordings on the Hay Player on our website. Join us next time for another trip through the Hay Archives.